Welcome back, everyone, to the Reflex Blue Show. I am your host, Donovan Beery. Here, we're recording from the How Design Live conference in the back room of Chicago. They finally opened up the door for us, and I have with me Justin Dower. Justin, how are you doing today? Doing well. How are you? Good. Now, you're actually you're actually ditching on the conference completely and going to Miami after this, I hear. That's correct. I actually have my luggage on the other side of the room, so... All right, my luggage is, I don't know, we'll find it eventually. Ah, okay. So, so you've got... You're here. You've got a book called Cultivating a Creative Culture. Correct. And where do people go to find out this book if, if they want to? By and large, industry agnostic, culture it can be a challenging thing in what we do in digital design. So, I mean, where, where do they go to buy the book or to find out more? Like, do you have a website? Oh, absolutely. The-culturebook.com is, okay. is the website. And uh, that's going to have podcasts, news, the blog, everything you need to know. Okay, fantastic. And, and it's a great-looking book. I love this little pink bird on it, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. If, if you see a pink bird on the book, it's the right book. Yes. Not, not, the, other, not the other non-creative culture. Correct, yeah. <laughs> so this came about, you wrote an article on a list apart? That's correct, yes. And, and, what, and, what, and what was it that, that brought you to, like, like, what was the response? What made you say, hey, I wrote, I've got an article on a list apart. Let's go full book mode on this. Yeah, that's, that's an excellent question. So the, uh, a list apart article was written through the lens of the agency. Um, I think it was called Resetting Agency Culture. And that was resonating with me at the time because I had spent a lot of time agency side and through my entire career I've kind of vacillated between agency side and tech side. And agency side has some inherent cultural issues by and large. Uh, People being utilized as resources, the last person out the door being qualified as that's the person's value to the company. So based on, uh, you know, just colleagues in the industry, my friends in the industry, I had like the fire in my belly, if you will, to kind of write something about how culture can be done right on the agency side. Uh, I had just started with a Swedish agency at that point. I was brought aboard to start the creative department within that agency uh, with their fledgling Chicago branch. So I was able to start a culture from scratch and really with a baseline of, you know, kind of empathy and compassion, you can kind of do anything culturally. When I was finally able to kind of put all these uh, methods uh, to use and practice, um, you know, I really felt there was a validity to kind of speaking out a way to do it right. So I wrote the article through the lens of the agency, uh, Resetting an Agency Culture. And the feedback I was getting across Twitter, across Facebook, across a list apart proper on the feedback section was people cross media, people in radio, people in print, uh, newspapers, et cetera, et cetera. And people were saying this resonated with them. It was through the lens of agency, but it really touched on core values that are kind of transmedia. So I, I kind of sat on that feedback for a bit, and uh, I realized it was bigger than through the lens of an agency. That, that was kind of the impetus for kind of going back, retooling my approach, uh, talking through uh, industry agnostic uh, more than agency uh, specific, and you know the book in front of you is where we netted out. Yeah, and the whole idea is is that you want to you want to create a culture and a vibe kind of in, in your creative space that nurtures people, that makes them want to work there, and that also gets the best creativity out of them without burning them out. Absolutely. Absolutely. Burning out, burnout is a big uh, part of this book, in fact, because, I mean, people uh, come into this industry as passionate people. Uh, they go to school because they're passionate about what they do. People, you know, kind of come into work and they apply their skills to their work work, but then they go home and the truly passionate people are, you know, tearing apart code on their laptop on the couch while they have something on Netflix, or they're you know, figuring out a new uh, way to use Illustrator via tutorials online. So people come to the office, they apply their skills, but they don't stop there. So truly passionate people always have that fire within them. So why just bring them into the office, make them a production line when they that they're fo- they, we can foster and, and grow the creativity in the office space as well? And it's not about 
it, it, it's weird because I, I know that the reason sometimes the culture gets how it is is because they're like, well, if, if somebody leaves for half an hour, we're losing half an hour. Exactly. And, and this is this is the mindset. And it's it's you know it's naturally hard not to want to lose all this money and have it go out the door. Right. Like if they stay an extra half an hour. But the truth is, it doesn't always work that way. Like replacing someone because they leave is different. Or at our office, we're right on a bike and walking mm-hmm, trail. Mm-hmm. And so if the weather's good, which is, it's in Omaha, so it's starting to get that way again, but it's been not as good the last few months, you know. We'll just leave for like a 10, 15 minute walk. And even though technically we lose 15 minutes of our day, Mm -hmm. I've always found that when you get back, you're, you're more productive. You make up that time immediately, immediately. You're stuck on a problem, you could either sit there and stare at your computer for 45 minutes or you could leave for 10 minutes and then come back and fix it in five. You actually gain like half an hour yeah. in some, some circumstances. Yeah, excellent point. I mean, there's kind of the adage uh, when you're when you're working in the office space, uh, one thing I like to say is fresh eyes are invaluable. So, you know, if you're working on something, if you get stuck, putting it aside if, if there's no deliverable that day and coming back the next day, you can see things that you never thought you'd see the previous day. I mean, just applying that rather than overnight to during the day, like you said, getting out of the office, you know, that, that half hour is an investment that you just cited. That walk is an investment towards refreshed uh, creativity, renewed energy, and uh, really it's going to charge your work the rest of the day. That simple thing, going outside for a coffee. I, I talk about coffee shops a lot in the book. Pausing, just, just pausing. I call that the act of the linger in the book. Just pausing to talk to somebody in the kitchen. Uh, just, you know, that whole momentum of there's something on my desk, get it done, onto the next. There's something on my desk, get it done, onto the next. That kind of... Uh, pauses that whole momentum and has you recalibrate yourself and humanize why you're at the office. Rather than passing someone in the hallway as a, as a air quote soulless, faceless person, you're humanizing your action at the office as well. So everything is kind of, you know, saturated in these micro-actions, uh, interactions throughout the day um, to humanize, to generate empathy, and to ultimately renew, renew your creative energy. Yeah, because there's nothing more valuable than having somebody actually not hating going to the office. Yes. Yes, absolutely, and, and that, that's you know that's how I start the book. With that, it, it was very near and dear to me that feeling, uh, that Sunday evening feeling when you have you know you can see the work week looming large ahead of you, and you know you, some your 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 partner next to you is talking about something, and you're you're kind of half listening or something on the TV is cool, and you're kind of half watching, but really in the back of your mind is oh god, I have to go back into the office. I'm going to get reamed about this one thing I did, or I have all these deliverables do. That is the exact wrong way to bring yourself into the office Monday morning with, with that dread, with that feeling in your stomach. So, uh, like I said, that's that's how I start the book, and, and it simply doesn't have to be that way. And, and it's written in a very informal, formal approach. It's an, it's a fast read because of it. Yep. You know, I feel, I feel like you kind of connect with Justin here while reading the book. I think I read it while waiting for my plane. You know, hour, two hours, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and yet it's very, it's very motivating. Some of the things are nice because you're like, oh, we're already kind of doing that. And some are things like, oh, these are actually pretty good ideas that also need to be brought in. Or, or even if you are doing everything in the book, it's really nice to have that affirmation that, yes. oh, this, I'm not the only one who thinks that, that, that a work environment should be creative if you have creatives there. Yeah, I'm glad you cited that because really uh, not everything is going to be a eureka moment in the book. The affirmation is, is, is purely a part of it. But when all the pieces of the puzzle, the affirmation part, the, oh, I guess I could actually do that or I hadn't considered that, all those things form the components of a creative culture. So it, it's, it's these, you know, like you said, bits of information and hopefully sparking some new ideas. All right, well, we're going to be right back with Justin Dower.
Now, Justin, I, I got to mention, there's one part of the book that really stood out to me here. Street Fighter, big fan. You you, you fan? Oh, you're speaking my life. I was actually, uh, the, the caliber nerd I am, I was actually in Street Fighter tournaments when I was in high school. Oh. So I'm hyper nerd. I wish we were recording this in my office because I have a Street Fighter 2 oh, arcade machine down. there. Oh, wow. And I've upgraded it from the very first iteration of Street Fighter 2 to the third one. Where, where you can play the bosses and it's and it's then a hyper speed hyper pass. fighting yeah yeah so I've got the hyper the hyper version in there oh boy yeah switch modded out got new joysticks and buttons and stuff you speak my language I think a trip to Omaha's on yeah. the dock so it's on free play it's just in our office everyone was always like you're gonna ruin productivity but I was like no no bringing in like an Xbox could ruin productivity because you can sit in front of one of those yeah for like three yeah, hours. yeah 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 a stand up arcade machine that was made to just suck quarters in. I mean, it's it's hard to play for more than fifteen minutes, right? Because you win it, right? And then you're like, oh, that's it, right? So if you need a break, sometimes and the weather's bad, you can say, oh. how far can I go before my quarter runs out, right? And then and then just call it good, and you feel you feel energized, but but uh, not enough to. Good on you. That's so, awesome. Who's your player? I uh, go between uh, Bison, uh, Akuma, or Ken. Okay, which one's Akuma? Akuma a... wasn't in hyper fighting. Okay, that's why I'm like I'm like I. I drop off after. Oh, okay. I can okay. play them, but I only play the guys I know because those are or or the Chun Li. But Norm Ken's my guys. So. Yeah. Okay. Flaming Dragon Punch guy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. A lot of Harukens and whatever, whatever. Yep. Awesome. So you just went up fifty cool points in my book. All right. Likewise. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I do think that is where more video games max down in awesomeness. Street Fighter. Yeah. So how are the tournaments? Uh, well, I mean, it's not, you know, when I was in tournaments uh, many moons ago, it was less, there's like eSports and things like that now. I mean, this was much more um, informal where you went into arcade, they had a bunch of cabinets like on a raised podium that just kind of called your name. You went up there. Uh, you know, people, uh, kids would like get in vans and drive cross country. I think some guy from California beat the crap out of me and I, I was eliminated pretty quick. But uh, it was a lot more informal then, and uh, you know, it was just something. Uh, every day after high school, I'd go to the arcade. I'd air quotes practice. Right. And my mom would say, you know, you can remember every code in every video game, but you can't remember whatever in history or whatever, which is accurate. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, big Street Fighter guy. And I think it was the fifth version of that Street Fighter Two where they brought in that where they actually could could daisy chain the, the machines, if I remember right. I had to do a bunch of research before getting a machine. Oh, I respect that. So you use the you use your you know your design knowledge yeah. to research, figure out what to get. Oh, that's how you do it. Yeah, well, that's fantastic. So, so what do you guys have at your office that that you that you found to kind of break the ice or to to get out of the place? Yeah, yeah. So, um, and, and, and by the way, you're in downtown Chicago-ish. I am in down. Yes, I'm in downtown Chicago. My last my last few positions have been in downtown Chicago. I live in downtown Chicago. Um, let's see. What do we have at the office? We actually have a Street Fighter cabinet on another floor. We take up one, two, three, four floors. So we have kind of the staple things. This is a, this is a really good segue. We have a Street Fighter cabinet. We have a foosball table. We have ping pong. Uh, we have the Zen room. These are all things that are baseline for a creative, or any, uh, possibly a healthy culture. These aren't, you know, you know, just a, a positive culture. Signs, demonstrated signs toward, you know, if you're burned out, go in here, blow off some steam. It's cool. We're not, we're not, you know, watching our clock. Those are the baseline signs. What, if you are looking for a company, you see those kind of things. You have to kind of watch between: is this, are these pandering signs of culture that? You know, uh, going out. You know, a creative culture is not really generated from Hawaiian shirt day or, or going out for beers. Those are nice things, but are they uh, more pandering signs? Like, uh, here's a sleep pod so you can come in and rest. Well, that's just enforcing that you can work till ten o'clock at night. Right, right, you know? right, right. So there's things like that, but 
the other side of the coin is these can also be uh, signs that you can then build off, you can platform off of these things as a creative culture. So in my uh, company now, I, we have those things, like I just said, but then again, I'm still running those creative inspiration meetings. I'm still insisting people go and work from a coffee shop or things like that because that baseline of culture of not watching people, who's, who your value is not qual qualified by the last one out the door, that applies to me being able to augment my team's creative energy a bit more. And I, I, you know, I have the autonomy uh, as a manager of the company to do these things. And, and, and that's, you know, as a creative culture, those are kind of signs you should watch for. Yeah, and I think the last, the last time I was like in a house per se, and it was been years ago, but mm -hmm. me and a coworker would take off to the bookstore slash coffee shop yep. and for like three hours sometimes. Yep. And the boss would always be like, "Hey, we need you know we're working on this project, and we're like, well, okay, we're gonna we're gonna leave, we'll be back later." And as long as we actually every now and then showed up with stuff when we turned, because sometimes even though you're like, "Are you working the whole three hours?" And you're like, "Probably not." Right. But by being out of that environment, yep. the gray cubicle environment, and being able to just talk with one person and not have other people like nosing in on it, right? We would come up with some pretty good ideas. And when we go return, that's and thankfully I had a boss that understood that that's all that mattered. Right, right, right. Like, oh, you 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 solved our problem, and I don't care how it was done. It didn't need to be solved here. I mean, you're you know straight away you're you're very fortunate to have had a boss like that who respects that because again you know that's that's not the norm. But uh, that also raises a point that I bring up in the book about the uh, tangible informing the intangible, taking inspiration from the from the outside world and reinforming our digital work. So you mentioned going to a bookstore. A couple points I make in the book. For, for those kids out there who don't know what a bookstore is, there oh, yes. used to be these places where people would go to buy books. Yes. <laughs> Maybe there was a compact disc there, too. And for those who don't know what a compact disc was, it's a physical version <laughs> of an MP3 file. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, yeah, thanks, thanks for uh, recalibrating on that one. But uh, yeah, so uh, taking inspiration from, you know, when you go to a bookstore, a bookstore is curated. What they're carrying is based on careful selection. And, and kind of taking the, the ascertaining the level of detail in the physical space because we have to be very mindful of every detail we do in our digital work. It's a way of uh, you know taking that level of detail and bringing it back into reinforming our digital space. So that's not wasted time. What you did going to the bookstore. I mean that's if the time is used uh, in, in a healthy, uh, positive way, it can absolutely inform your digital work. Yeah, and it wasn't done on a, on a. I think if we did it every single day, we'd probably get a little gut for it. That could be challenging. But it was, but it was one of those where every now and then there was a certain project where it came out, and it's like we need to brainstorm, and it's not going to happen in here. Sure, sure. So that was good. What's the one thing that you think places outside of even the creative industry can take from your book? The baseline of uh, empathy. Ultimately, so um, you know the, the lens in the book. I talk about you know we work a lot with personas and user experience, and, and coming at it from an empathetic approach obviously informs our work towards putting yourself in the mindset of a user. So stripping away the mindset of the user part and just being good to people. I talk about ego in the book, and uh, you know how ego is cancerous in the workplace, and how leveraging humility uh, in the book just towards. You know, uh, putting a human face to your coworkers and just being respectful. Those are all kind of core values um, that apply towards everything. That applies towards respect towards an employee going out for more inspiration. That applies towards not, you know, giving the head, you know, turning that, like pointing at your watch if someone has to leave early to pick up their child or right. something like that. So that baseline of human empathy and, and respect and lack of ego applies really is the springboard for everything in the book. And it sounds like something like, 
the most common sense thing in the world, but again, it is not to be taken for granted in any industry, any industry. And uh, some of the feedback I, you know, I wrote the first article, I had people in their 50s, 60s uh, giving feedback, and they said, I've worked in the, I've worked, I've just worked 30, 40 years, I've never experienced anything like this. I gave my mom the book, which is a classic thing. My mom read the book. My mom said, I, in my entire career, I've never worked in a place, you know, like you're describing. So, I, you know, these kind of core human values of being decent to each other, any industry, I mean, it, it's a known quantity. That's not to be taken for granted. And I think that's part of the reason you bring in the foosball, and that is because it makes you talk to other people not as coworkers, but as like foosball enemies. Yes, or, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> there's kind of a there's kind of a bond that you you make and you can empathize with people if, if you know them outside of just what they do. Very well said. Yes. So, well, this is great. We're going to be back with one last section with uh, Justin Dower. All right, so other than this, other than the Street Fighter machine at the office, yes. I'm actually above my desk, I've got a six-foot-long shelf of nothing but Superman figures. So that's all we got. That's, so that our culture is basically Superman and Street Fighter. Okay. And I hear you, you're, you're also a superhero guy. Yes. Well, you're absolutely speaking my language there. Uh, Batman is my guy. Okay. Um, it's still in the DC family. I'll, I'll give that respect. Still yeah. in the DC family. There was a, a movie that recently came out where they, you know, the kind of conflict was at the core of the movie where they beat the crap out of each other for a bit. You know, I, I knew... From everything I saw, as, as you get older, you like read the tea leaves on movie trailers and right. interviews, and and I and I kind of gathered what that that movie was garbage. And oh. I have not yet seen it. Eventually, oh, okay. eventually it's going to show up on Netflix or Hulu or Amazon for free, and yep. then I and then I will watch it. But but I I purposely I mean I didn't spend my money on it because I I had this feeling. <laughs> it was the same feeling I got when I was younger, but I still had the feeling. And it was Batman and Robin, and I was correct on that. Oh, that was that. Yeah, that's an abomination towards. And normally, Batman movies are pretty good. That one, that was, like even a bad Batman movie is pretty good. But that one is just that one. Oh. Yeah, you know, I'm almost uh, afraid to talk about it. But uh, that that was kind of a a blight on Batman, Batman lore. Uh, but. You know, the, the original Batman, the Keaton Batman 89. Oh, yeah. Big I fan. saw that five times in the theater. I think that's my record. That one's awesome. Uh, Batman vs. Superman has some cool stuff. I, I'm not a, a, an Affleck fan. I don't know if Affleck is uh, one of your podcast listeners. No offense, Ben. but I really doubt it. Okay. I just like, I like the guy when he plays a real jerk. Yes. Like, I think he's really good at it. Yes. But every time I see him in other things, I'm like, I don't know if I like this guy. <laughs> but if he's playing a jerk, like like he did when he you know dazed and confused is is the one. Right. I'm like this is or anything he does with Kevin Smith. Mm -hmm. I'm like he's so good. Knocks it out of the park. So I guess I guess if, if he wants to play Batman as a jerk, I, I could probably deal with. Yeah, him. I was gonna say you know I'm not the the biggest uh, Affleck fan, but as Batman, I don't know what he, he he was a pretty good Batman. I think he just probably played a jerk Batman. Yes, it was a jerk Batman. Well then he's he's the guy. Yeah, he crushed it. Okay. Yeah. Well, he just needs to play jerks all the time. <laughs> Yeah, no, that Batman and Robin one was so bad. I think first time I ever bought a DVD player, it just had free DVD inside. It doesn't even say what the DVD is. Is that it? it? Yeah, it means it's Batman and Robin. Oh, good God! I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, so so that was the first time I watched it because I got a free DVD, <laughs> and it still took me like six sittings to sit through it. Yeah, I can imagine. And I, and I was kind of a fan, and I was still like, "Oh, this is painful." Yeah, it's painful. It's painful. It did not stand the test of time. No, no, it did not. Yeah. All right. Well, Justin, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. What, what do people go? What's, what's the website again? The uh, website is the-culturebook.com. 
Okay, and, and, and you also talk about other things in this book. You talk about interviewing, and, and you have a big section, which, which I thought was really great at the very beginning, talking about like how someone's first day should be. Yes, yes. And, and, it, and was, have you ever had a first day like that? Absolutely. And is it, is it the one that you created for yourself? It's a variation on that. It had, you know, again, the baseline of that, and I kind of retooled it to, to, you know, everyone can kind of do it their, their own way. And I'm, even everything in this book, I'm not saying this is exactly how you have to do it. The, the general point is to incite new ideas, like we talked at the beginning about validation versus uh, generating new ideas. I mean, people can kind of iterate on that new first day, that new day one, but as simple as just having a new day one on a Friday. People kind of guffaw at that. Why, why on earth would you start that? And I talk about carrying that positive momentum through the weekend. People going back and taking the, 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 the sense of their new company to their family and their friends. But Apple always does their first day on Monday. Uh, yes. Okay. Yes. So, so obviously there's not one way to do things or whatever, but, but there's reasons that both places, that you do Friday and they do Monday. Precisely. Yeah, precisely. So my, my preferred way is, is the Friday, of course, where somebody kind of comes in, sets up their laptop. We kind of uh, do the, the, the tour. There are standard things, handshakes, tour, lunch. These are lobs, you know, kind of for a healthy first date. Now, now if, if you're an agency that makes people work every weekend, like 16-hour days on the weekends, probably Friday being the first day isn't good because it sets them up right away. Like Monday might be better. They've already worked there before they realize, oh, I have to work the weekend. <laughs> so I think there might be some adjustings on this. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a good point. If you see, like, you know, if you're coming in, if you're working on the weekend, if there are cots, by the cubicles, I mean, those right away are signs to get the hell out of there. When would you like me to start? How about 3 a.m. on Saturday? <laughs> get, get an early head start, and you're like, what? Yeah, so, yeah. that's more Bill Lumberg uh, caliber boss, I think, from Office Space than any place yeah. you want. Yeah. Um, where, and, and you also just say, like, if you see cots, it's just bull. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so, uh, you know, it, that might be one of the more um, uh, incendiary parts of the book, but I talk about the five-day principle. Give, give the new role five days. I mean, I've, I've worked in roles before where there's that social, um, what do I want to say, the, the, the social sense that I've come aboard this, this job, I've been hired, my recruiter got me here, what have you. I owe it to them. I can see, I can see things are not right, they're not the best fit. I should stay. You know, what are they going to say? What if I go to HR? What if they yell at me? I mean, that's kind of bullshit. Really, you have to look out for number one in that sense. Uh, six months, a year's loss of inspiration of doing your best work, of improving your skill set is is mortifying. Uh, you know, based on why we why we get into what we do, based on our passions, that flame extinguishing can take a long time to kind of regrow that energy and and you know kind of carry that momentum to doing good work. So if you see something, trust your gut, and and you know you sometimes you have to, there's no easy way. I say in that fifth chapter, there's no easy. I'm not. There's no easy route to doing these kind of things, you have to take a bold step sometimes. Yeah, and, and sometimes there are that place where you're like, it's not quite right, but you're like, there's only a couple things I can make this right. Right. And then there's times where you're like, it's not right, and you know it's never going to be right. Absolutely. Absolutely. That, the latter, more extreme circumstances yeah. that I'm talking about, yep. And, and I assume you've been in one of those. I have. And I did not, I did not take my own advice, and I, I deeply regret it. Okay. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time, and we'll be back. Uh, we'll be back in a, in a week or two with uh, with our next show. Thanks, so, Doctor. I think I think Bill Gardner is the next guest lined up. Do you have any questions for him? He runs Logo Lounge. Yeah, let's take it back to Batman versus Superman. Okay, we'll ask him. Batman, Superman. Batman versus Superman. Kryptonite is in play. Who wins? All right. Yeah.
Well, we'll be interested to see. There's lots, lots of takes on this. I think one. the answer is pretty clear, but let's see what he has to say. Mm, I think, I think we're gonna, think we're gonna disagree. Let's on that one. Okay. All right. Fair enough. All right. Thanks. Thanks, Donovan. The Reflex Blue Show with Donovan Beery is hosted at 36point.com. Music by Dustlab. Find out more at myspace.com/dustlab. Thank you.